Well, welcome to Economic Frontiers. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to have uh, with me today uh, two authors, uh, uh, Rahul Talang and Mike Smith, of a wonderful new book, Streaming, Sharing, and Stealing, uh, a book about how big data is affecting the media industry and how digital technology is also affecting the media industry. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Andre. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think maybe the best place to get started is uh, why don't you guys tell us something uh, about the book, the motivation, and the motivation for why you wrote it. Sure. Uh, so Rahul and I, for the past 10 years, have been doing a lot of research with the major movie studios, major record labels, and major publishing houses on how technology is changing their, their business. Um, and a lot of that research was on you know, specific questions. How does piracy impact sales? How do your release windows change? How, does, how do prices change? What's the uh, cannibalization or, or interaction between different channels? Um, and I think along the way, we started to ask uh, a deeper question, which is, is technology changing the nature of, of power in these industries, the nature of market power? Um, and, and to us, what's really interesting about that question is for the last hundred years, market power in these industries has been concentrated in the hands of three to six major studios, major labels, or major, major publishing houses. And yet now it feels like that power is shifting in many cases to the hands of the digital distribution companies like Amazon, Netflix, and, and Google. And we wanted to set out to understand if that's happening, and and then from an economic perspective, why might that be happening? Interesting. So, how do we think about the role of these uh, these studios? Uh, should we think of them as intermediaries, or are they doing more than just simply connecting producers to retailers, for example? Uh, no, they do a lot of value add. Obviously, they are gatekeepers. So at some level, they are sourcing all the talent and putting together this talent to create a product. And they also play a very important role in produce, in distributing and promoting the product. So in fact, as Michael mentioned, that these companies dominated for last 100 years, just a few companies. And one of the big reason was they were able to control the major sources of input, number one being to be able to get the artists and, and the talent uh, and number two, to be able to control the distribution of the content. So clearly studios were not just connecting uh, you know, the artists to the audience, but they were also adding all these other value add added, if you would. Um, and that's really what led them to be so successful in the first place. And this was true for both music labels and publishers as well. And but. Uh what were, I guess, the barriers to entry so that this industry was uh, as concentrated as, as it ended up being? I mean, if I wanted to start a new studio, uh, what would my inherent kind of disadvantages be? Well, one big one is it costs a whole bunch of money to make a movie, and and most most movies don't cover those costs. So in, in some sense, there are huge economies of scale associated with the costs of, of creating the movie and also the risk associated with bringing that movie to market. In, in one sense, you can look at these studios kind of like venture capitalists. They put, they put money on a bunch of different properties in the hopes that one or two of them will go on to be big hits. Um, I think the, the other source of uh, uh, economies of scale that, that we talk about in the book is their economies of scale in each of these industries associated with getting your content onto the scarce distribution channels. If you want to get your, your song on, on a radio station's playlist or onto a motion picture studio's, uh, a motion picture theater's screens, it helps to be big. It helps to have the power that goes along with uh, being a big three studio or big three record label. Just if I just add to it, if you're an artist or a talent, um, it, it, having these economies of scale also create this you know, virtuous cycle. You, you are able to attract the most talent as well because they know that you are able to 
promote and distribute their product more effectively than anybody else. So you combine all these three together, it's very hard for a new entrant, especially a small entrant to come in and be successful. Okay. So how does the technological development that we see recently affect these kind of entry costs and the market power uh, that these companies have? So if, if, you, if you think about the sources of scarcity that, that Rahul talked about, there's scarcity in how content gets created, and then there's scarcity in how content gets distributed. So the, the tools and the funding necessary to create content is, is something that you have to go to a studio to get. And then if you want to get access to a major television channel or, get, or, or access to AMC movie theaters, it really helps to go through a major studio. What we're arguing in the book is neither of those things are as scarce as they once were. Um, you know, now now with off-the-shelf technologies, you can do a decent job of of making your own content. And with YouTube and and Amazon and iTunes, you know, the access to the distribution channels are much more democratized. The other thing that changes in the in the presence of technology is that um, piracy messes up all of the studios and and labels and publishers existing business models. All those business models are based on using price discrimination strategies where you need to control how, when and in what format the customer gets access to your content. Much harder to do that um, in the presence of piracy. So a lot of the key strengths that the that the majors used to benefit from aren't as scarce as they once were. What we're arguing in the book is the new scarce resource now is customer attention. And the people who are able to control that are the people who own the customer, which again is Apple, um, Amazon, Netflix, and, and Google. Got it. Uh, I just want to uh, uh, backtrack a little bit. So you were talking about uh, this ability to price discriminate. Uh, one thing I was curious about was, is there a way to um, decompose the business model of a record studio into like a pure product and then the additional gains that they're getting from their ability to price discriminate? And then secondly, can you dive a little deeper into how that price discrimination works for the audience? So I think there are both components going on, uh, both for Actually, not both. I mean, it both uh, for the for the motion pictures, for the record label, as well as for the book publishers, they're clearly doing this temporal price discrimination. That is, they go and bring a product uh, which is expensive, and to make it more appealing, it they're also packaged it much better. So whether it's coming in theater, whether it's a book that's coming in hardcover, and so on and so forth, and the goal is to get people who are impatient to to be willing to pay higher amount of money and then after some time they go ahead and in case of book for example will release a paperback to attract rest of the customers who are willing to then pay for that same thing happens for the motion picture where where you come in a theater and then you eventually go on a dvd you can go on uh, on demand and eventually go completely free which is the television over there where you generate money through uh, advertising. So this has been an extremely effective strategy in the movie industry. This is also called the windowing strategy where you have these different windows in which, which the content is released. Um, and as Michael mentioned, this price discrimination strategy to an extent depends on your ability to control the content. That is, you have to be able to make sure that people who are waiting for DVD or people who are waiting for the movie to come on television, they, they cannot get that any other way. And as the piracy came in, that business model gets severely disrupted because now people don't have to go to the theater. They don't have to go to the DVD. They can go visit some of these internet sources and start consuming uh, the, the content, sort of disrupting the, the clear price discrimination strategy. I think the other component I think you asked is, Along with this, then they are also able to package these other merchandise. So not only they make money through the core product, but then they're able to attach various merchandising associated with it. 
I don't know whether you would directly call it price discrimination, but at least some value added where, you know, they can actually sell the product for cheap and make a lot of money off these other value added that they're trying to sell. So these both kind of go hand in hand together uh, and and has been, uh, you know, very successful revenue model for all three industries in, in, in creative industries. But... Uh just to push back on that, those two seem to go in slightly different directions. So uh, let's say that I'm the type of person that's not willing to wait for the DVD release. So I might pirate the movie um, or, you know, I might never have bought the DVD in the first place, but I still might demand the merchandise. So I might still want like the shirt with the name of the movie or my favorite artist or, or whatever. So uh, what is kind of the empirical evidence uh, for both of these channels, one the spillovers onto the regular purchases, but also the spillovers onto the complementary purchases like the merchandise. I mean, you're right. My sense is that the other component is usually just a support system. That is, that's not really the main source of revenue. If your main source of revenue becomes severely disrupted, I don't know whether you can just rely on your secondary sources of revenue. Uh, to to be able to be a successful business. So, so I think you're right. They, they are not exactly the same thing. But at the same time, it's not that, you know, piracy is making your product very successful. So that's okay because I'm going to make all my money sell, selling this merchandise. I don't think that's what happened in the publishing or, or in the motion picture industry. Um, we saw some of that happening in the concert business, but I don't know whether concert business could be called as a value added when basically that has become the core component of the of the music business going forward. Yeah, I think the the main point we're trying to make is both of their sources of you know their their main sources of market power have been diminished at the same time that their sources that their 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 main source of profit from their business model has has become diminished. Um, that's that's the point we're trying to make in the book. Does that does that seem right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Uh, one one other aspect that I wanted you to discuss a little bit is how some of the clever ways in which you're able to measure these spillovers from, for example, piracy onto uh, regular sales. Uh, so if one of you can talk about that, that'd be awesome. So the 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 impact of piracy on sales, there are a variety of ways you you can do it. Um, I think in in a sense, one of the cutest and easiest to understand way is to look for a natural experiment, look for uh, something that changes with respect to piracy, but doesn't change the the doesn't directly change the likelihood of of people people uh, 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 being interested in the content. Um, so an example of this, one of the early studies we did had to do with, uh, with NBC. Um, NBC in 2007 got into a fight with Apple and pulled all of their content off the iTunes store uh, to punish Apple for, for what NBC perceived to be Apple's uh, unnecessarily uh, resistant uh, uh, policies. And so the question you ask is, when, when those people who were buying on iTunes can't buy more, where do they go? Um, and we were able to look at both digital channels like Amazon and physical channels like DVD sales and also piracy. And the answer is when people can't buy on iTunes, um, there's statistically no increase in DVD sales. There's a very, very small increase in digital sales on, on other platforms. And there's an enormous increase in, in the demand and piracy. And, and that reflects, you know, this strong elasticity between legal and, and piracy. There are also a bunch of other studies that show directly that, that piracy, the availability of piracy hurts, hurts legal sales. Um, I'll just give, uh, you know, just to give, uh, Michael gave an example where there's a negative spillover. You know, piracy negatively affects demand in some of the channels you know one of the most interesting thing actually about this industry is how many channels through which they sell their products it's it's unbelievable you know the motion picture industry is selling you know the, the on itunes it is selling on amazon it is selling dvd it is renting the movie it is renting the digital version of the movie there are so many channels they are essentially s selling 
and sometimes even they are not sure whether the channels are cannibalizing each other, whether they are actually adding to positive spillovers. And a lot of their business strategies are sort of gut feel, if you would. So to give you an example, we had this a very interesting paper about HBO. That is the movie shows up on HBO. Uh, and the common wisdom in the firm with which we were working was that the broadcast on HBO was going to undermine the DVD sale. They felt, well, people can watch mm -hmm. the movie on TV. You know, why would they go and buy a DVD? Uh, you know, luckily we had a natural experiment happen at the time where the entry of a movie in HBO was uncorrelated with its popularity as well as when exactly it enters. So it was uncorrelated, giving us an opportunity. So we looked at the data and we found that when the movie actually starts playing on HBO, the, the demand for the DVDs actually go up rather than go down. And it goes up for some of those long tail movies where we conjecture then that the long tail movies are not very well known. People haven't paid too much attention to those movies, but here it comes on HBO. You know, people can watch it for free, conditional on having an HBO subscription. And many times it creates this information spillover that they, they feel like, you know, why don't I have the DVD or maybe they can gift the DVD or whatever you can think of. So after these studies, you know, at some level, the studios to, to an extent was surprised that, you know, this could actually create this positive spillover. So uh, you ask the question about how various channels interact with each other. And, and you know, this is itself is something, um, you know, a lot of data analytics can go in. And, and we had opportunities to work on on a bunch of these projects. Yeah, that, that seems like a really important and underexplored, frankly, question. I mean, even just the fact that uh, in your iTunes example, you didn't see very much spillover onto Amazon, but you saw much more into piracy. Uh, I think that that's an interesting fact to try to explain. Like, why don't people use multiple platforms more often? Uh, why do they just stick with, with the one that they're used to, for example? Uh, do you have any idea about that? I think one of the stories that we have is that people who are digital customers, they are digital customers. That is, if you stop one form of digital channel, it's not like they will go and migrate towards a legal physical channel. So they are unlikely to go buy your physical DVD if you stop, let's just say, for example, you know, their legal uh, digital channel. They are much more likely to go to an infringing digital channel. So I think one of the stories from our research that, that, that emerged was, you know, people seem to have a preference for digitization, digital content versus some, some people have a physical content. And the migration between one to the other actually happens a lot less frequently than, than we imagine. Like another example of, of stickiness from the NBC paper was once people, what, what it seems like in the data is once people learned how to pirate, not only did they pirate their NBC content, they also started pirating their ABC, CBS, and Fox content. And then the other thing we saw is that once they learned how to pirate, it was much harder to get them back to the channel. So when NBC returned to iTunes a year later, um, there was a much smaller drop in piracy than, than there was the, the initial increase in piracy. Uh, so, you know, what I think one of the things we're saying there is a lot of the a lot of the hesitancy initially to use digital channels was that the studios and the labels and the publishers didn't want to cannibalize their their physical sales. What we're seeing in the data is that by you know that that the digital consumer is already gone. Um, you're you're not you're not cannibalizing physical sales by by serving them you're actually reducing reducing piracy which has a whole bunch of other benefits to your business yeah that that, that of course uh, makes sense i guess just a, a follow-up on on that thought though now there are multiple digital channels so do we have a sense of for example if you turn off one of the digital channels but leave the other digital legal channels on what determines whether someone goes to piracy or to the other digital legal channel I think the, 
I mean, I don't know whether we have any particular research where we have looked at migration from one digital channel to another legal digital channel, but my sense is that you are much more likely to see people migrating to another digital legal channel as long as it's reasonably priced and kind of widely available versus, you know, just, you know, migrating back to the to the piracy. Of course, piracy is is, is almost like a persistent factor. It, it's it's kind of part of the environment. So these firms are obviously operating that the piracy is out there. Um, but, you know, increasingly what we are seeing is that many different digital channels are now being made available, not just in the US, even internationally. Um, in fact, I think it's, re it's reasonable to even conclude that the days of physical distributions are probably, you know, declining very sharply. So the revenues that are coming from physical DVDs, um, you know, I, I think that proportion is declining sharply and probably, you know, will become somewhat insignificant over the next five, 10 years. So it, we are talking about interaction between all di digital channels going forward. Yeah, that, that, that seems uh, really evident. Um, have you done any research on the pricing power that a particular uh, content distributor or platform has. So let's say I make the price of my movie, you know, a dollar more. Uh, is that going to affect uh, the demand for that movie by a lot or by a little? Or how, how do these uh, companies think about this? So, you know, Michael and I actually have been involved in a, you know, very large pricing experiments over the last couple of years. So we have been working with a bunch of studios and a bunch of retailers, all the big names you can think of, uh, and trying to exactly understand what is the optimal prices for these products. You know, obviously it's a very difficult question because, you know, these products have a different demand to begin with. Over time, their demand changes in ways that's not always exactly consistent. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we are trying to essentially do is infer what are the price elasticities for these different movies acro across different channels. Um, all I can tell you is that, especially for some of the older movies, you know, people are extremely price elastic. Um, and reduction in price actually ha is showing a very large increase in, um, in, the, in the demand. Um, the challenge that, that we all have is whether it's a retailer or whether it's a studio, they are, they are set in doing business in certain ways. Um, you know, to give you an example, you know, they are used to selling DVDs for $14.99. So when they go to the, phys you know, the digital channel, sometimes they have inclination to price similarly. Uh, and, and, you know, some of those decisions are made not necessarily completely data-driven. Uh, but, but I think, you know, we are, we are trying to kind of work with them to infer what would be the right prices. And as I said, I, you know, at least our, some of the initial work suggests that especially some of the older movies uh, can benefit from some, some significant price reduction. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it, it seems like for this entire industry, this is a pivotal question is how much are different types or different is different content a substitute for each other? Because if there's a kind of like a lot of substitutability, then you might think that uh, this gives the advantage to platforms like Netflix, where they might not have every movie, but they have enough that people will find some that they, something that they like. On the other hand, if there's not a lot of substitutability, then each you know a, a movie that that has a particular niche or is actually very popular, that's the one that people want to watch for sure. And then you have kind of a lot of pricing power and a lot of market power in general. So uh, I, to me, this seems like uh, the, big, the big question, like when, I, when, I, when is this power there? I think that, uh, you know, the, each movie certainly has its own demand. Uh, you know, we see that in the data. It's not like uh, you know, if I'm willing, if I go to say Amazon and I want to buy movie A and I see a movie B, which is much cheaper, it's not like there is a large scale migration to movie B. I think people want to watch A 
if the price point for A is not right, they might be unwilling to watch it. But if you lower the price point, then they're willing to buy it. It's not like they go and substitute movie B. So they're not perfectly substitutable products. In fact, they're quite imperfectly substitutable. It's just that the way they are priced individually, uh, I think sometimes it's suboptimal and, and it requires uh, you know, more careful work on part of everybody. And I think one one of the key pieces here, though, you know, Rahul talking about the 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 price understanding, um, the the companies who are able to measure that directly and are able to run the experiments directly, all of a sudden have a huge advantage. And and those companies are Amazon, Netflix, Apple, and and Google. Um, the studios and the labels and the publishers are are removed from that. Uh, and and have a much much more difficult time understanding what customer willingness to pay is and and responding to that. I think we we saw this in another study we did with a major record label where they were trying to understand what's the optimal price on online and and they had uh, a unique opportunity to to run an experiment. And what they discovered is their prices for albums were thirty percent too too high and their prices for for, I'm sorry, their prices for albums were were 30%, yeah, 30% too high, and their prices for singles were 30% too low. Uh, so they were 30% off in their in their prices. Amazon, that that's an experiment they can easily run, and and so they're it's much less likely that they're going to be 30% off in in the optimal prices that they set. I mean, not to go off tangentially, but I think this challenge that Amazon, Google, and Netflix has very detailed information about users and even their demand elasticity, because this information doesn't get shared with the studios. Um, you know, studios are reluctant to say, so you can imagine a world where a certain movie can benefit from lower prices. Amazon knows that, um, but it's not able to convey this information back to the retailer or at least not convey it credibly because it doesn't want to share that information. The retailer is unwill uh, the, the, the studio is unwilling to lower the wholesale prices. And if it doesn't lower the wholesale prices, Amazon cannot lower the prices and so on and so forth. So you can see, you know, there's a lot of uh, information asymmetry and information friction that also makes it difficult to find the right price point for a particular product. And, and, and yeah. you know, these, this industry is not unique. I think this happens a lot, but this, is, this happens quite a bit, I think, in this space where studios have very little consumer data and retailers have all the data. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing, though, that just as, a, as a, an industrial organization economist uh, that, that I think about is that this, in some sense, just an experiment is not enough to tell you what the optimal price is in this industry, right? Like there's, there are these huge word of mouth effects. There is uh, dynamic demand going on. So, you know, you might just be moving up the purchase uh, relative to when it would have happened otherwise. And, and I mean, yeah, how do, you, how do you get at these kind of second order effects, which may actually be quite important? Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, you know, some of these experiments have been run for a very long period of time. We are talking four months and six months just to this idea that people might be just deferring the purchase or they might accelerate the purchase if you lower the price and then you start losing the demand at the back end. Um, so, you know, some of these questions actually looked at it, you know, in a very careful way, including the substitution. That is, if I lower the price for good A, am I losing the demand for good B? So you want to just not look at the individual product level elasticity. You want to go at a bundle level. You want to go at a market level. You want to go at a channel level. So all of these questions are very relevant. And, you know, a lot of our research is exploring them in various, you know, various parts and various aspects. It is, you know, very challenging because these different retailers don't want to coordinate sometimes. So even if the studio wants to work with Michael and I in doing running an experiment, you know, the Amazon throws up its hands and say, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I'll just do whatever I feel like doing. So coordinating between all these players to run this experiment actually turns out to be an Herculeanly difficult task. 
um, you know, rather than designing the experiment, you can design, you know, a clever and nice experiment, you know, it faces the reality and, you know, uh, sometimes the, the things don't move exactly how you plan. Yeah, I'm impressed that you've even convinced this many uh, studios and companies to work with you. I mean, uh, it's even just getting one company on board is very difficult in my experience. So, so that's a, a lot of credit to you on, on that. Um, one, one thing that I did want to kind of point out is that uh, you were talking about some of the substitutability within a channel. But um, just to just like going back to my earlier point, I think the way the substitutability might work is, uh, you know, there's a movie that uh, that I may consider buying on on, let's say, Amazon. But then I see that the price is too high. I might not buy another movie on Amazon, but I might go watch something on Netflix. So, like, I guess the question is, like, the in the overall market for attention, how much kind of market power does a particular piece of content have? Um, and that's much broader question maybe than, uh, than just a within, within channel uh, market power, if that makes sense. Yep, it, it's, a, it's a broad question and, and a very interesting one. I don't know that we've done any research directly on that. I think what, what we do see, however, is a shift away from a focus on the content, which which is where it's always been, and at least marginally toward a focus on the platform. Seem, people seem to be much more loyal to the platform than than they were in the age in the age of of television, for example. You know, I could easily switch between CBS, ABC, NBC. Now, if you're used to consuming on Netflix. The, the ability to switch over to Amazon streaming or or streaming on you know Hulu or something like that um, is is much lower. I think you're more likely to stay on Netflix because you understand how to use the interface. Uh, you're comfortable with it. Blah blah blah. Yeah, that that is that is interesting. I mean, in in some sense, it's also. Um, it's also th th there seems to be kind of some similar price tier for for all these services. So I don't know if like to what extent have how does competition between these platforms actually work? Like how does uh, Amazon Video try to take away you know subscribers from Netflix, or are they actually mostly focused on uh, taking away subscribers from regular cable television? So like actually, yeah, that, that's an interesting st strategy question. What is your kind of take on that? So for the, I don't know about the streaming part, but for the, what they call it, the electronic sell through EST, which is you can buy the movie digitally or rent the movie digitally. Uh, Amazon's stated position is that it is always going to be the lowest price. So if iTunes were to lower the price or if Voodoo or a Google Play were to lower the price, iTunes, uh, Amazon, um, you know, it actually has a bot which scrapes these prices and automatically lowers the prices to match the lowest retailer. So at least in that space, we know that that's what the Amazon strategy is. For streaming, it's a more challenging because as far as I know, most of the streaming services, the, they are subscription based. So the marginal uh, cost for streaming almost always is zero. So you know you are either going to get people to convert into buying subscription from for you or or not. So convert, you know, that's a much more difficult challenge. I think in a subscript in this in this world, probably how much content you have plays a big role. That is, so Amazon wants to increase the library of its content. Netflix want to increase the library of content and then sell that bundle to a user and say, come and be my customer because my bundle is more valuable than Netflix bundle, let's just say. The, the one thing Amazon has, however, is the ability to use the prime service to get people from the, from the physical purchases over to the digital subscription. So, you know, I, I'm a prime customer, Rahul's a prime customer, and all of a sudden an email shows up in our, in our mailboxes saying, and now you have access to Amazon Prime streaming service. You know, you don't, you don't have to pay for anything. It just comes with your, with your overall prime, prime streaming. That's a really interesting strategy they're using to pull people into the, into the streaming world. And again, the, you, since you mentioned about all this substitution, 
if you look if you're a studio this is an even more challenging question for you because if you if you license the movie for streaming you really worry about jeopardizing all the sale that is happening on your electronic sell through all your dvds and i can tell you that nobody knows you know very clearly that if i release a movie and if i license the movie out on a netflix or on amazon prime what's happening to my sale on the other channels i'm not entirely sure that this whole exercise that how much is the licensing worth and what it means is something you know kind of people have carefully done the cost benefit analysis and you know again it's a probably a very interesting question for studios hopefully for academics as well but something something that you know hopefully we'll be able to tackle it yeah i mean there's certainly a lot of uh, money on the line as far as these decisions are concerned exactly uh, um so i want to shift gears a little bit um you had this fascinating story of kind of the negotiations between um, NBC, NBC and iTunes. So can you kind of um, explain how that went down? Like what, what was Apple's stated position? Uh, and, then, uh, and then how did this bargaining play out over, over the time period? Yeah, and, and to be clear, the, the, that story was told based on secondary sources. We, we don't have any direct knowledge of, you know, firsthand knowledge of either side of that negotiation. Um, or I guess we have very little firsthand knowledge of either side of that negotiation. But the, the story that played out in the press was that NBC had always felt like they were in charge. So if NBC pulled a major title off the shelves of Target, Target would be in deep trouble. Target would have to capitulate to that. Um, and, they, and they used that same attitude to approach Apple. And, and even more so because from their data, they, their data suggested they made up about 40% of sales on the iTunes store. So they felt like they were in a really strong bargaining position saying, we're going to pull 40% of your sales off the site if you don't give us what you, what you want. Um, I'm sure it hurt Apple, but what the data suggests is it hurt, uh, it, it hurt NBC even more because it used to be the case that if people couldn't find the content on Target, they would go to Walmart and buy it. Um, what, what we found in the data is that when people couldn't find it on iTunes, they went to piracy. And so it hurt iTunes, but it also hurt NBC fairly, fairly badly. The other thing NBC was hoping, quite frankly, is they were launching their own platform at the same time. So they were hoping to weaken Apple's platform at, at the, you know, sort of to the advantage of their new platform. Um, and, and what the public data suggests is not a whole lot of people switched from Apple to NBC's platform. Not a whole lot of people switched from Apple to Amazon's platform. The, the closest substitute was digital piracy where nobody got paid. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I mean, it also highlights a, general, a more general theme in your book in that the attempts by these uh, uh, studios to create uh, their own platforms have not been super successful. I mean, even when you look at uh, Hulu, the streaming video competitor, I don't know. I don't know what place it's in. Is it is it the fourth largest at this point, That's or the right, third yeah. largest? Um, so uh, you you documented some of the challenges in starting up uh, Hulu for by these studios. So so can you can you talk about that? So uh, you know one of the things that we learned as we worked with this industry is there are a lot of silos. You know there is a home entertainment division and there is a theatrical division and there is a streaming division. They each sometimes work for their own self-interest versus sometimes looking at the whole firm as, 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 as one. So think about Hulu. If you think of Hulu as one of the division where streaming is happening, you know, the home entertainment division is thinking if the movies get licensed on streaming to Hulu, I lose because I'm losing some of the customers. The, um, the DVD division is thinking in the same way. So I think one of the challenges that Hulu ran into is exactly that. That is, many times the different division in the studio looked at Hulu as sort of a competitor versus something that was a facilitator or something that was a complement. 
So naturally, until Net- Netflix became, you know, really popular, you know, the Hulu was sort of, you know, like a second cousin. It's good to have, but really not a strategic focus for the firm or something. You know, they, uh, you know, they, they paid, you know, very deep and strategic atten- attention. And again, my sense is uh, that the way these studios are organized and they, the, the way they are in- incentivized actually made it a little difficult for Hulu to become a dominant platform, even though it actually had an opportunity to be a dominant platform. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, it seems from this, uh, from just the story of the organizational troubles that the studio should be organized so that um, each piece of content has its own team rather than each channel has its own team. Is that something that we've seen uh, a shift towards or is it still kind of the same org structure? The vast majority of studios are, are still organized around, you know, these these product window silos, theatrical, home entertainment, television. Um, the other the other point we make in the book is that the data is a part of the political power in these studios. And so it's very difficult to get the home entertainment division to share shared their data with the theatrical division or vice versa. Um, and we see that as a huge disadvantage, particularly when you look at how Amazon and Netflix are, are organized. They're not organized around data silos. They're organized in a way where the data are available to, to be used across the, across the entity. I think maybe there is a little bit of opening up across this data silos, but the business units are still basically similar to what we, you know, what we saw a few years ago, where, you know, you could clearly see, as as you mentioned, Andre, that, you know, focusing on content could be, you know, could reduce some of these frictions rather than focusing on these different divisions, which sometimes, you know, accentuate these these frictions and actually makes for suboptimal decisions. I think another example of of bad incentives, actually one of the first papers we did was with the with the publishing industry. And the question was from the for the publishers, should you delay the release of the Kindle title to increase your hardcover sales? And and their attitude was, you know, why would I want to reduce the number of twenty dollar hardcover sales I make to sell ten dollar Kindle titles? And poking around a little bit, what you discovered was that their, their, their margin on both sales was about the same, that the amount of money you make on a $20 hardcover sale was about the same as the amount of money you make on a $10 Kindle sale. Um, and so you go back to the publisher and you say, why do you care? And what you discover is the reason they care is all the sales incentives are based on revenue. So for the salesperson, a $20 hardcover sale actually is twice as good as a $10 Kindle sale, even though for the company, it's, it's, it's exactly the same. And, and so you have all these you have all these incentives that worked wonderfully well for the last hundred years and now aren't working as well anymore in the presence of these digital channels. I mean, that that's actually a much broader point in some sense. Understanding your cost structure um, is quite difficult. Uh, so I have a lot of experience, obviously, with uh, online marketplaces and understanding what the cost to the platform is of a transaction is really important for thinking about how do you structure your marketplace, but it's actually really, even really hard to measure. So uh, I don't, it's not just unique uh, to this industry. Correct, but, but, the, but the digitization probably has highlighted these even more saliently than maybe you know, what was relevant five years ago. Yeah, that that that's de- that's definitely true. Um, the other thing, since we're talking about this example of the Kindle versus hardcover, is there was this paper that you talked about where you measured whether the Kindle and the hardcover were actually substitutes or not, um, and uh, and it seems like you found that at least for a large share of the of the potential buyers, they, they they don't they don't look at them as substitutes. They either want the Kindle or they want the hardcover. Uh, uh, and oftentimes not not both. Uh, so uh, has that research found its way through the industry? How's, how's the industry reacting to that? I believe the industry's actually adopted that. You know, when, when we did the paper, the big, the conventional wisdom was you want to delay the Kindle release so you increase hardcover sales. Today, 
the vast, vast, vast majority of hardcovers are released at the same time as as the Kindle. Um, there's there's no delay. Um, an interesting piece of this is has to do with with movies, quite frankly. Um, for a long time, the same conventional wisdom held. We want to delay the release of the movie on iTunes so we don't cannibalize our DVD sales. Today, most movies are released on iTunes before they're released on, on DVD. And, and the logic there is once the DVD enters the manufacturing process, once it's digital and in the manufacturing process, it's almost impossible to control the piracy. And so almost all DVDs are released on piracy a week to two weeks before the legal DVD release. Somebody, somebody in the in the manufacturing uh, uh, supply chain pulls it off, rips it, makes it digital, and releases it. And so a lot of studios have adapted by releasing the movie on iTunes to coincide with the piracy release well before the DVD release. And in fact, we see that in the data that that you you sell much more if you release your movies a couple of weeks before the DVD release than you would if you either released them simultaneously or delayed the iTunes release. That, that's really cool. I mean, the fact that your research has at least in part contributed to these industry changes, I think that that's a huge accomplishment. It's really difficult to get your research to, to actually have a real world impact. Um, I want to get to one more um, one more subject before we, we close up, which is actually the quality of the content. So if one of the main lessons of, uh, of this book is that it's getting harder and harder to price discriminate, it's harder to charge uh, high prices for content, then that should in equilibrium uh, reduce the incentives to produce content. Uh, now, there are also other countervailing forces that are driven by this technology, but how do you, how do you think about this, this trade-off? Well, I think that even though, as you said, it's difficult to do price discrimination and, and piracy and so on and so forth, I think the other effect that's happening, at least for the motion picture, probably for music and publishing as well, is that the international markets are opening up tremendously. So you are still able to generate a significant amount of revenue. Maybe your cost structures is going down. So a lot of digitization in a technology also means that your costs are going down. So uh, in fact, the biggest challenge when you're trying to understand the content creation and piracy is exactly that, which is if you look at the evidence, if you look at the amount and volume of content that is being produced, whether it's music, whether it's books, whether it's movies, you actually see that those numbers are essentially increasing. So it's easy to then go ahead and conclude that the piracy has had no effect uh, for precisely these reasons that there is these other factors that are happening at the same time. I think the quality part is probably the most challenging. That is, how do you measure then the quality of content? That is, you could legitimately claim, Andre, that, well, I can't make enough money. Um, and, and, and my costs are going down. So sure, my volume of production is going up, but the quality of that production might not be going up or the quality of that production might actually be declining. Um, if you look at last four or five years, you know, different authors are trying to attack this problem uh, in variety of ways. Uh, and, and I don't think there is a one simple solution to it. I think, you know, there'll, there'll be a bunch of different papers who are trying to look at this question very, you know, very carefully. I don't even know whether there is a nice vertical differentiation, like a quality matrix here where everybody agrees that this movie is a higher quality than other. There's a lot of horizontal differentiation component to it. That is, we might not all agree, which is a high quality. So you have to probably find a lot of clues. I think Joel had worked a little bit in this space. Um, you know, Michael and I are trying to look at this question. We looked at this question uh, in, in space of Bollywood, where we looked at volumes, we looked at the product reviews, we looked at the IMDb votes as some sort of measure. But all of those are, uh, you know, not perfect. Um, and, and I think I feel like going forward, an important research agenda is going to be exactly that, that what does the digitization mean to not just the volume of content being created, but also the quality of content that is being created. The other, the other thing that I think is going on here that's really interesting is I think 
the way we have traditionally measured quality might be changing. So if, if you're a network and you can only you can only broadcast one show in the Thursday 9 p.m. time slot, your measure of quality is how many people watch that show. And could I have put something else in there that would have gotten more viewers? Um, if you're Netflix, I don't know that raw numbers are as much a measure of quality versus how many people are subscribing to my service because of this piece of content. And the critical thing for Netflix is Rahul might be subscribing to Netflix for a completely different set of content than I am. Um, so it's it's really what piece of content is going get to get, get Rahul to subscribe ne next month. Uh, the, the point we've made in a couple of talks is if you're a if you're a major uh, broadcaster, your goal is to find more viewers for the content you already have. If you're a streaming service, your goal is to find more content that meets the unique needs of your individual viewers. And so it's it's a very different game that they're playing. And and we're trying to convince the traditional players to not use the old metrics to measure the value of the com customers in the new channels. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think there's also an interesting complementarity between the technology and the content, right? Like we think that Netflix's uh, algorithmic recommendations are really important to its success. So if you aren't able to uh, convince the right person to watch the right content, then it doesn't matter if they would have liked it, if they, you know, if they're not going to watch it anyway, right? And, and critically, Netflix is the one who controls the interface that, that allows them to find those customers. You know, Net Netflix has the data about me and Rahul and our preferences and can promote content directly to us based on those unique preferences. That's something the studios have never had, never had to do. It's never been particularly important. It's important today, and it's something that they need to start worrying about. And that goes back to the point that Mike mentioned that, um, you know, maybe if you have a very good recommendation system, you can actually offer me somewhat of a niche content and keep me perfectly happy rather than going after this popular blockbuster content. I guess the other th the other interesting thing as so this is just now introspection is the uh, the benefit that I get from consuming content is in some sense a function of my ability to talk to people about it and. Um, at least with books, and I don't have any evidence for this, it seems like I know very few people that are reading books, and, and when they are reading books, they're usually not reading the same exact books as me. So I think, I think perhaps uh, we've lost something from that, uh, but I was wondering, have, have there been any studies uh, on this? I don't know of any academic studies on this. This is certainly something that we're interested in, you know, and, and I think it's part of a broader... Uh, set of research about whether big data is is hurting the creative process or helping the creative process. You know, by by leading us away from these blockbuster titles, is that uh, diluting culture or or helping culture? And I think you can make you can make both arguments. Um, and you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Thanks so much uh, for uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you. I Fantastic. think you were a very gracious host and asked some great questions. I thoroughly enjoyed it.